For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4 through 23, which um, are entitled, Combating Egotism in God's Community. As it turns out, once you become a believer in Christ, it's not like your problems just magically disappear. Um, and it, it also turns out, too, that a lot of the egotism that represented your old life before you knew Christ actually finds new outlets in spiritual things. And that's exactly what we are seeing in this community here in Corinth, that these believers in Christ were starting to fall into this ego-based behavior. We read in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4, Paul says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Apparently, there are these factions arising between these different figures in Corinth, these, these leaders. This guy, Apollos, actually shows up in the book of Acts, Acts 18, verse 24 through 26, and the author, Luke, actually gives us a description about this guy who was incredibly gifted and talented. He was a native of Alexandria. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Apparently, Priscilla and Aquila met this guy, got a hold of him, and taught him more about Christ. And eventually, he joined this traveling band of, you know, Paul and his companions, and they were traveling from city to city in the ancient world, sharing the message of Christ and planting new churches. Apparently, at some point, he actually went back to Corinth in order to strengthen the believers there, and he, I guess, was so gifted, so powerful in his speech and in his leadership that many of the Corinthians actually started to rally around him and they were, they were very taken with him. Um, Paul gives us a glimpse of how bad this, these factions were that were arising in Corinth in chapter 1, verse 10 through uh, 16, which we skipped. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you might be perfectly united in mind and thought. He says, my brother, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean by this is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And yet even another says, I follow Christ. So there are these parties that were cropping up within this community. Of course, there were some who sided with Paul who originated that church there. He was the founder, so they were probably like, the original crew of Christians, and they're just like, you know, we've been here the whole time and probably had a sense of, you know, pride that came from that, like, yeah, we were Paul's original disciples. But then uh, there was the faction that grew up with Apollos and also with Cephas, which is another name for Peter. It's the Greek uh, transliteration of Peter. And you know, of course, we're speculating about this, but these guys probably were Jewish Christians 
who associated themselves with Peter, or at least liked him because he had a prominent um, church and ministry that he led there in Jerusalem. So they probably are like, we like this guy, and so we're the Peter party. And then you had these others who said, I follow Christ. And again, you know, we're in the realm of speculation here. We're not exactly sure what these guys were thinking, but it could be that these people were like, we don't follow any human leaders. We get all of our instruction from Christ himself. And so maybe there is this anti-human leadership movement among the, the Corinthians. We're not exactly sure. Either way, Paul detested this. He says, uh, he gives three stinging rhetorical questions in response. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were, you? were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. And, and yes, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't really remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> He's like, you know, there may have been others. I, I'm sort of blanking right now. And he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul was really upset that there were people associating themselves and identifying themselves with him as a faction within this Corinthian church. And you would think that he would be sort of, I don't know, flattered by this, right? I mean, imagine if hundreds or even thousands of people sort of rallied around your personality. You'd be sort of like, well, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, I'm trying to lead them to Christ. And yet Paul saw this as a threat. And, you know, you see this a lot, even in American churches today, where there are these mega churches that center around this one individual, this charismatic personality. And it's almost like the people are following this individual rather than God. It's like a cult of personality that centers around this individual. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I think these leaders, they're doing this innocently. They're not trying to build sort of this environment or ecosystem that centers around their personality. But they probably don't see the danger in it like Paul did. You know, Paul wasn't flattered by this party that was forming around him. He was actually very angry about it. You know, when you look at a party spirit, it, it invites egotism. It's all about the person, the individual, their personality, and how great they are. And I think there's a, a huge danger in that because a lot of times when people are massaging your ego, that might be innocent enough, but over time that starts to get into your head and you start to like it. You start to crave it. And you see some of these leaders who have these incredible falls, partly because they let the power and the glory that they were getting from their ministry get to their head. And so there's huge danger in this. Secondly, a man-centered model of the church makes succession impossible. You know, one of the things that worries me about some of these massive American churches headed by 
an, a single person is what's going to happen with the, that group once this person dies? Or what if, what if something happens to them? What's going to happen to this group? I mean, it, will it be completely gone? There's going to be a vacuum of leadership. And so it makes succession impossible uh, when you have this man-centered view of the church. Finally, uh, factions may lead to division in the church. One of the things I really love about this church is is that there isn't one individual that everybody looks to. And, you know, we, we weren't smart enough to figure that out. God sort of orchestrated our church that way. But one of the dangers that we face is that when you have several individuals who are highly gifted, highly charismatic, that it's very easy, I think, for people to rally around a certain personality. And so it's important that we resist this sort of party spirit that we are seeing in Corinth. Well, we read in verse 5, What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So he says, you know, we're just servants here. And this word servant it wasn't like a good term that you would use for somebody in the ancient world. This, this referred to somebody who was a household servant. It was a menial position that somebody would hold. And the New Testament captures this word, diakonos, to describe what each individual must be if they want to follow Christ. That You know, we're not here to try to assert our authority or to try to gain control of people. You know, what God calls on us to do is exactly what Jesus himself did. Not to seize and gain power and prestige, but to to lower ourselves and to lay down our lives for others in love. And really this idea of servanthood, it's connected to the biblical idea of love. You know, contrary to what you hear about In our culture, love isn't just a feeling that you get. It's not, you know, this this connection, this chemistry that you have with somebody. It's much more than that, according to the Bible. Biblical love entails self-sacrifice. It means laying aside my desires, my wants, my convenience, maybe even my comfort in order to serve and meet the needs of other people. You know, Jesus defined it in John 15, verse 13, where he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend or his brother. And so really that epitomizes Christianity. It's love. It's it's laying down your life for someone else. And so that's exactly what God calls on us to do, to serve and love one another. He also says that uh, they came to believe as the Lord assigned each his task. And in another translation, the New American Standard Bible, the translators render this, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I like that translation a little bit better. It's that God gives each individual who's following him an opportunity to serve. And so, you know, when we capitalize on an opportunity, let's say last week, you know, we had an opportunity to talk to somebody about a problem that they have. Or maybe we had an opportunity to encourage somebody when they, we sense that 
they were feeling down. Or maybe we had an opportunity to bring one of our friends to a meeting and help introduce them to Christ. You know, we didn't make that happen, right? We didn't orchestrate that. We weren't smart enough to do that. God says that he places opportunities in front of us. And if we're willing, if we're responsive to the Spirit's leading, that we have an incredible opportunity to capitalize on that. So the role that we play, it's important, but it's minimal compared to the work that God is doing through the Spirit. Because ultimately, we can't change somebody's heart. We can't change somebody's mind. You know, think about trying to uh, transform someone's thinking after, you know, 20 years of forming their opinions and views about the world. To think that we can come in there and change all of that based on our intelligence and our persuasion, that's just, that's just sheer arrogance. If anything, we get an opportunity to participate in the great work that God is doing. I want to do a little quiz here. Those of you who are so-called basketball fans, um, do you know who this is? Oh, okay. This is Dante Jones, okay? Dante Jones um, got a contract from the Cavs at the end of the 2016 regular season for $8,000 to play in the playoffs, Okay, And Dante Jones, he really didn't do very much. He didn't play really throughout the playoffs, just a couple times in several games. But uh, in game six against Golden State, uh, as they were approaching halftime, there was about a minute and a half left. Dante Jones got a little bit of playtime, about a minute and a half, and he scored five points. And... Uh, he managed to draw two fouls against Draymond Green. And of course, we know at the end of the story that they ended up winning the NBA Finals as a result. Now, uh, what's funny is that he really didn't make that much money because uh, you know, he had a $9,000 contract. And apparently, during the playoffs, he got ejected in one game and it was a $6,000 fine. So it was two-thirds of his salary for the playoffs. <laughs> So, you know, Dante Jones, an obscure figure, um, really got to, to be a part of history. You know, it would be more than an overstatement to say that Dante Jones led the Cavs to their victory, right? We all know the truth, that, that it was LeBron James who basically led the Cavs to, to that final championship. But, you know, Dante Jones, he, he had an opportunity to be a part of history. He got a ring, just like everybody else. He got to actually play and participate, play his small part. And he got to step on the court with the second greatest player of all time. <laughs> Chicago Bulls fan. But anyway, you know, I think that... Um, when you think about a guy like Dante Jones, you know, in a, in a similar fashion, we're kind of like him, you know? Um, we're not really doing a ton compared to all the work that God is doing, but he gives us the privilege to make history, to, to make an impact on eternity. So for us to turn around and, and look at the work that God has done and say, I did all that, 
That's really dishonest. And that's exactly what these guys were into, that they were being dishonest with themselves and carrying out uh, this, you know, they're holding on to this egotistical attitude. He goes on to say in verse six through eight, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God caused the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So Paul is using this metaphor of farming to try to illustrate his point. He points, off, points out, first of all, that um, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. And so, you know, he's really pointing to these Corinthians who were you know, having this ego-based attitude where they were, they were looking to individual Christian leaders and saying, you know, I'm sweet because I'm associated with this guy. Even though these guys, you know, they weren't, they weren't competing with each other. And yet the Corinthian believers were using their association with these leaders to compete with one another. So it didn't really make much sense. And that's exactly what you see in an ego-based environment. When you have egotism in God's community, you'll see that there is competition that crops up between people, where people will find different reasons to look their nose down at somebody and feel superior. And Paul is saying that there's no place for competition in our service and really in our community. You know, uh, Ken Blanchard, who uh, wrote a really great leadership book, uh, says, a little friendly competition rarely stays little or friendly when a Christian worker makes the rewards for winning too great and the price of failure too high. When you seek to determine your level of self-worth and security by comparison with others, the end result is either complacency or anxiety. There's a lot of truth to that. I mean... You know, in sports, it's really, it's, it's okay to be like, well, we should have just a little healthy competition, a little competitive drive to push each other. But that really makes no sense in the context of serving God. Because we're all on the same team. We're not competing with one another. You know, you think about a football team. That would be like, let's say, a lineman, a guard, right? Competing with the wide receiver, feeling jealous, of the wide receiver's role. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, the success of that team is determined by their ability to work together well. And likewise, you know, God calls on all of us to be united in our purpose, not to compete with one another, not to jockey for position to try to show who's better. And you see that a lot within God's community. Well, he says, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. So it's important to see that we are unified in purpose. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to show that, you know, I was just playing my part and so was Apollos, but we were united in our purpose. And that's really one way to break down the egotism and the competition is to take a humble stance and to see yourself 
not only working for God, but also needing other people whom God has placed around you to carry out your work effectively. That we need one another. And that God has gifted each individual within your group, in your home church, to play his or her specific role. And that that role is it's, it's crucial to the function of your group and to the spiritual health of your group. You know, as a young Christian believer, I used to just knock myself out trying to serve God. I, I, would, I would, at one point, was leading three groups. I was out most nights of the week, you know, teaching uh, probably three or four times a week. And um, periodically, I would have these, like, emotional breakdowns or I'd go through bouts of depression. At other times, I'd go through stretches where I just felt burnt out where, you know, I just felt sort of tired of doing work and it just felt like a duty to do anything for God. And I would go through this cycle until finally, you know, an older Christian worker came to me and said, you know, you need to start relying on other people. You need to stop pretending like you are like the Messiah of Columbus, Ohio, (laughs) that it's your job to save everyone and to fix every single problem. And, you know, I resisted him and, and uh, was like, no, I'll just take care of it myself. I don't need anybody. And, uh, you know, anytime somebody came to me and said, hey, I've got a suggestion for you about maybe something you could do in this group that you're leading, I'd be like in the back of my head saying, you know, what does this person know? They don't even have any experience in this. They have, no, they have really uh, no qualification to speak into my life. And so I would just basically throw off any sort of suggestions that they had. And finally... Uh, after some failure uh, and seeing how I was incapable of doing this myself, God finally convinced me that I needed other people, that I needed to work with others in order to carry out his work. And so some of us, you know, we're maybe new to serving God and we just have in our minds that we have to do this by ourselves. We don't need anybody else. That's not the way that God designed his community, the body of Christ. We're here to rely on one another and to carry out work together. You know, in the ancient world, whenever they would farm a field, it was sort of a family affair where the extended family would work on the field. And it really didn't matter who watered, who planted, who harvested. What mattered was that they got the job done together. And so likewise, God calls on us as his community to work together to carry out his purposes. You know, I think this also points to the fact that, you know, we shouldn't feel responsible for the outcome of our service. We're really only responsible for our faithfulness. It takes a lot of the pressure off of trying to, you know, get things done by myself. Feeling that that sense of anxiety that everything depends on me. You know, this could easily spiral into what you might call codependent uh, ministry where you feel like the people whom God has entrusted to you, that you're like solely responsible for how they act and how they speak. That's, That's not your responsibility. People have their own choice. And so it's really up to us to do what we think God is calling us to do, to be faithful and then leave the results up to him. But this doesn't mean that the results don't matter either. Uh, Results do matter. 
And, you know, we see on numerous occasions, you know, the Apostle Paul pointing to the fact that um, he would do really anything to maximize his results so long as it was within the limitation of God's will. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, he says uh, I do, I, I'm, I'm all things to all men so that I may win some. And so it's important for us to see that, you know, Paul, he, he was not a pragmatist in the sense that, you know, he only looked at the results and thought, I'll do whatever it takes to get these results. He cared about integrity. He cared about being honorable to God and being faithful to what God was calling him to do. And so he didn't go beyond that. You know, uh, I think about how in some churches today, you know, they will, they will conduct a market research. Uh, they'll hire pros to do a demographic study of an area before they la launch a church. And they'll basically cater everything. The message, they'll even tell you how the pastor needs to dress, what the pastor needs to look like, uh, what a building needs to look like in order to draw and cater to the demographic that they're trying to reach. And so they basically are running the church like it's a business, and yet, I think the danger in doing that is, number one, when you read these leadership books that talk about how to successfully lead a church, a lot of times, it doesn't contain any scripture at all. All that matters is what works, what's going what's to yield the best results. And sometimes, when we, when we take that mindset, it causes us to accommodate the truth in a way that basically uh, pleases people, causes them to feel like, okay, Christianity seems really appealing to me, but we're watering it down so that people will feel like, yeah, oh, that sounds really cool. We're essentially blunting the sharpness of the gospel off of, um, you know, uh, off of it so that we basically can get more people to come around. And so, you know, God is opposed to that. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to take this pragmatic approach. You know, for us, we're idealists. We're not pragmatists. We care about what's true, not necessarily about what's going to yield the best results. The results eventually will come. Um, but sometimes, you know, they're not immediate, and, and we have to keep working at it and being faithful to God. He says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you're God's field, God's building." So he starts to mix his metaphor a little bit here. You know, he was talking about how we are God's field. He's using the plural there, you are. And now he's starting to say, you're kind of like a building too. And he goes on to say, by the grace that God has given me, I have laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building upon it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul sees himself as this expert builder. In other words, he has the, pl the blueprints in mind. He understands that Christ is the essential foundation, that everything needs to be centered around Christ. And he says, as each individual builds upon this foundation I laid, they should be careful how they build. 
In other words, it's not that you, you, you work for God and that that's all that matters. It's also how you build upon this structure. It's, it's about the quality of work that you're putting in, not just the amount of work. He says, if any man builds upon this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. So he says that on the day, uh, God will reveal the quality of each person's work. So apparently, there's a foundation that has been laid, and that is people coming into a relationship with Christ, and God commissions us to start building upon that foundation to serve him and to expand his kingdom. But God will reveal the quality of our work on the day. And we get a little clue about what this day refers to in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Sounds like a day that we don't want to see, right? But actually, this day doesn't refer to, you know, the judgment where God will separate out those who have gained entrance into heaven and those who are excluded. That's not what he's talking about here because we know that the way that we gain entrance into heaven isn't because of our good works or by avoiding bad works. It's because of what Christ has done. It's the free gift that he offers us. So this is talking about something different. This is talking about a day when Jesus himself will reward us. This word here, judgment seat, in Greek is the word bema. And in the ancient world, they would talk about the bema seat as the seat where whenever somebody was, uh, you know, a competitor in athletic games and they won, they would come up to the Bama seat and receive their prize for their victory. And so what Paul is talking about here is the believer who, because of his or her work, actually gets to receive a reward, which is amazing, that God would reward us for serving him. He not only gives us eternal life for free, he also gives us an opportunity to be able to serve him And he also says he's going to find reasons to praise us and to reward us. I think that's amazing that God would do that. He says the fire will test the quality of each person's work. You know, when he in the ancient world, they would build uh, their buildings with a variety of different materials. They would use, you know. In the case of wealthy people, they would have, you know, costly stones. Maybe they would have some gold and silver inlays within their house. Um, But, you know, the common people, they they would construct their homes uh, mostly of, you know, wood, hay, or straw. Things that were, you know, flammable. They weren't fire uh, retardants. And so essentially what would happen is anytime a fire would break out in an ancient city, a lot of times it would consume the entire city. The only thing that would be standing would be these things, 
that were, um, you know, impervious to fire. And it wasn't like they could just, you know, they had like a, a, a fire, you know, fire plug there where they could, you know, put out a fire. They'd have to run out to the river or something with a bucket. And by then your house is burned down. <laughs> but the point is that, um, you know, he's saying that when we work for God, that we're either building upon this foundation that, that God has laid in Christ with different materials, some that will be consumed, that won't last into eternity, and others that will disappear when God reveals its quality. And so what is he talking about? I think, you know, if we peek ahead in chapter 4, um, verse 5, Paul points out uh, that, that, you know, we shouldn't judge before the appointed time, and, and we should wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So apparently, what God will reveal on this day of judgment, the Bema seat, is our motive and the quality of the, the work that we've done for him. You know, I think... One way to tell if we're building with flammable materials would be, are we serving according to God's will? Sometimes, you know, we are serving and directing all of our energy into something that God says, that's important, but not that important. And the only way to find out whether something's really important or whether God values it highly is to, is to study the Bible and to understand what he values. Also, we can find out whether we're building with flammable materials by figuring out whether our work contributed to building up God's people. We can be certain that when we invest in one another and help each other grow spiritually, that that's going to endure into eternity, that God values that highly. Also, serving with correct motives. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be pure in all of your motives because, you know, a lot of times we serve with mixed motives. I remember as a very young Christian, um, I started getting this idea in my head that I should maybe start serving. And I should start by serving this girl that I really liked <laughs> in my group. And so, you know, I would do these little acts of service for her and stuff. And, you know, it dawned on me, I'm like, okay, on the one hand, you know, I, I, I do care about her. And I'm not doing this just, you know, for selfish reasons, but on the, other hand, on the other hand, I wanted to hook up with her too, so that's confusing, right? Which is it? Am I serving with bad motives? Is that going to go up uh, when I face Christ? You know, I think whenever we examine our acts of service, I'm sure if we break it down, we could always find a sliver of selfishness or self-aggrandizement. And I, I don't think that, you know, God, uh, you know, he's not gonna nitpick us and just discard all of that work because, you know, we had some mixed motives there. But that's different in my mind to somebody who is purely serving because they want glory or they want acknowledgement. Or in some cases, you'll see Christian leaders who are serving in order to gain money and people's admiration. I think that's, you know, exactly what Paul's talking about here. 
You know, the other thing is to, to find out whether we're building upon this foundation with flammable materials to see whether or not God empowered our work through relying on him. Trusting that God is the one generating the power to carry out this work. You know, one of the things that I notice as I have grown in my relationship with God is that I'm finding myself working less and trusting more. You know, I used to just, like I said, knock myself out trying to serve God, and I really didn't get that much done in those early days. But I think I've come to a place where God has shown me through failure uh, that the only way to uh, deliver work that's actually going to be enduring is to trust in him, to know that it's actually his power working through me and in others' lives. He says in verse 14 and 15, if what he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. Yet he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So apparently we get to receive this incredible reward, which is awesome. God rewards us for, say, for, for serving him. Now, I know some people have asked me this question in relation to this concept. Isn't it selfish to serve because we want to receive a reward, like a heavenly reward? I think my first answer would be, God built in us this desire for reward. You know, you think about this instinctive drive to work hard and that feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment that you get from accomplishing something. That's not wrong. That's from God. He built that in us. In fact, he has given us this drive for reward to incentivize us to work harder. We know that that's an ethic that God has for all people is that they work hard because God himself works. Secondly, um, God's rewards don't feed our ego. Um, you know, we think about the different rewards that God gives to us. One that, that he tells us about in Matthew 25 is that if we serve him faithfully, at the end of our lives, he's going to come to us and say, good and faithful servant, why don't you come into my happiness? You know, can you imagine getting praise from God himself? That's amazing. You know, think about the person that you look up to most. When they praise you for something you've done well, I mean, you're just elated by that, right? Imagine the God of the universe telling you that. Good job. That's going to be a great day. You know, and, and the thing is, this desire for praise and glory, that's not wrong. Our fallen human nature has distorted that desire such that we want to put ourselves at center stage and put God in the background. But the way that God created us, he actually wants to use us as a conduit for his glory. Look at what he says in John 15, verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You know, when you admire a beautiful piece of art, you're paying homage to the artist. Likewise, when people see the work that we're able to accomplish, when people see the change in our lives, people are supposed to turn to God and say, that's amazing that God did that in your life. Even more, 
Jesus says in John 17, verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one even as we are. So it turns out that when people give glory to God because of the work that he's done through us, God actually gives us glory. He, pray, he heaps the glory upon us. And so it's amazing that we get to participate in that, that we get to bask in the glory of God, that he actually gives us credit for this. The other thing is, when you look at the rewards we get, Paul tells us that it's, it doesn't comprise things. It comprises people. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19 and 20, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. He's saying, you know, one day when we arrive in heaven and, and, and you know, God has settled all accounts, we're going to see people whom we have impacted people that we've met here on earth and people that we've never met that God was able to reach either through our, our time, our resources, or our money. And so when we arrive in eternity, we're going to have a paradigm shift. We're going to see the world differently. The things that really mattered here, like, you know, getting the best education and making the most amount of money and getting people to admire you, all of those things are going to really pale in comparison to the things that God says are really important. A uh, number of years ago, actually many, many years ago, uh, I remember watching this movie, Schindler's List. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And um, this guy, Oscar Schindler, uh, made a fortune making mess kits for the Nazis uh, prior to World War II. And he made all of this money by essentially commissioning these, uh, these Jewish workers who were, weren't getting paid for their work. And so he made a fortune off of them. And as he noticed that the, many of these Jewish people were disappearing, and he put the pieces together that the Nazis were actually killing them in mass, he felt compassion for them. And so he squandered his wealth by creating a munitions factory and employing 1,200 Jewish people with the intention of trying to save them. And so at the end of World War II, when the Russians were coming in, he had to escape. And yet the 1,200 people that he saved gathered around him as he's about to make his exit.
think about, um, <clears throat> you know, one day when we stand before God, uh, the things that, you know, we buried our nose in that we decided was the thing that we needed to pour our entire lives out. And if those things were not centered around things that would at, at last eternally, I think we're going to be asking ourselves, why did we do that? He says in verse 15, if it's burned up, this person will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved as one, yet by one escaping through the flames. You know, imagine if your house was on fire and um, you couldn't grab any articles of clothing or any of your stuff and you just narrowly escaped with your life. There would be a sense of loss, but you would be happy that you're alive. And there will be some people who have decided they're not going to follow God, even though they have a relationship with him, or others who have decided to serve him with the wrong motives, who even though they will suffer loss, will still be preserved because of what Christ has done. So it's an incredibly positive message. Finally, he says, so then no one, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, life or death, or the present future, all is yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. In other words, all of these people, all of these things, even the earth itself, God has given. And so we have really no reason to boast. Let's draw a couple conclusions here. First of all, God not only offers us eternal life, he offers us a meaning-filled life. You know, if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, your first step 
is to turn to him and receive the forgiveness that he wants to offer you freely through Jesus Christ. And the moment you do that, you can not only embark on a life that's centered around him, but also you can live a life that actually contains meaning and purpose. Secondly, as God transforms your mind, you become more and more concerned about others and less concerned about yourself. That's one of the things you start to see is that instead of being egocentric and uh, self-centered in your thinking, you start to think more about other people and the people around you. And it turns out that's actually really good and relieving. You know, we, we often tell ourselves, man, I feel really crappy. I should just think about myself more. How's that going? Is that making you feel any better? Turns out, God wants to transform our thinking to be more like Christ, who is more concerned about others than himself. Finally, the growing excitement of pursuing spiritual goals actually dwarfs these earlier interests. That's one of the things you start to see is that as you give yourself over to serving God, these things that you used to think were really awesome, that you used to obsess over, those things don't even seem important anymore. And so God is able to change your values. All right, let's uh, just turn to God in some prayer. Yeah, thanks that um, you promised that we don't labor in vain, that um, the service that we perform for you is um, never going to go unnoticed. And um, thank you that you place great value on our faithfulness, even though sometimes we don't see the results that we're looking for. And often I think those results are hidden, and uh, we don't see them immediately, so... Pray that we can uh, take the longer view of our lives and our service to you, realizing that uh, as we endure, as we persevere in serving you, that we're going to see a great harvest. And um, we pray for those of us, Lord, who are maybe in a place where we sense that our lives are really not meaningless, but just uh, aimless, and uh, we're confused about what that means. I pray that um, <clears throat> we would have the courage to call out to you, see whether or not you're real, and to uh, continue to explore whether or not what you have to say in the Bible is actually true. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.